Hello everybody and welcome to A Book Before Bedtime, the podcast that reads a classic book a couple chapters at a time. Well everybody, we've done it! Yay! We're at the very last episode of A Little Princess. Oh, I'm so excited. Are you excited? I'm very excited to be finishing this book. <laughs> it's been a great book, but I think it's time for me to read something different. Um, I'm really excited to see how this ends because I'm really not sure. So far, this story is going a little bit different than what I remembered it, especially from the movies. But hey, that's a great thing, because I hope you're enjoying it, because I'm enjoying it, as I just said. So, um, I'm just going to jump right in. Um, I am not going to do a brief recap as I have been, except that you should know that in our last our last podcast, the magic has happened. Um Sarah has woken up to a wonderful, fantastic surprise. She has beautiful linens and a beautiful room all finely decorated. And she's sharing this with Becky. And they are suddenly amazed. What's going to happen? Who did this? We kind of have an idea at who may have produced this magic. But Sarah doesn't know. So, without further ado... I present to you the very last episode of A Little Princess, being the whole story of Sarah Crew, now told for the first time, by Frances Hodgson Burnett. This is starting with chapter 16 and ending, I believe, with chapter 19, so the next and last four chapters. I will talk to you more at the end about what's going to happen over the next few weeks, if you still want to listen in, but there are some interesting things that I'm planning between now and... August 19th when I return back from my trip and we're going to start a whole new book but for the meantime just listen to the story are you ready because I'm ready let's read chapter 16 of A Little Princess chapter 16 the visitor imagine if you can what the rest of the evening was like how they crouched by the fire which blazed and leaped and made of so much of itself in the little grate, how they removed the covers of the dishes and found rich, hot, savory soup, which was a meal in itself, and sandwiches and toast and muffins enough for both of them. The mug from the washstand was used as Becky's teacup, and the tea was so delicious that it was not necessary to pretend that it was anything else but tea. They were warm and full-fed and happy, and it was just like Sarah that, having found her strange good fortune real, she should give herself up to the enjoyment of it at, to the utmost. She had lived such a life of imaginings that she was quite equal to accepting any wonderful thing that happened, and almost to cease, in a short time, to find it bewildering. I don't know anyone in the world who could have done it, she said, but there has been someone, and here we are sitting by the fire, and, and it's true. And whoever it is, whatever they are, I have a friend, Becky. Someone is my friend. It cannot be denied that as they sat before the blazing fire and ate the nourishing, comfortable food, they felt a kind of rapturous awe and looked into each other's eyes with something like doubt. Do you think? Becky faltered once in a whisper. Do you think it could melt away, miss? Hadn't we better be quick? And she hastily crammed her sandwich into her mouth. If it was only a dream, the kitchen manners would be overlooked. No, it won't melt away, said Sarah. I am eating this muffin, and I can taste it. 
You never really eat things in dreams. You only think that you're going to eat them. Besides, I keep giving myself pinches, and I touched a hot piece of coal just now on the purpose. The sleepy comfort which at length almost overpowered them was a heavenly thing. It was the drowsiness of happy, well-fed childhood, and they sat in the fire glow and luxuriated it until Sarah found herself turning to look at her transformed bed. There were even blankets enough to share with Becky. The narrow couch in the next attic was more comfortable that night than its occupant had ever dreamed that it could be. As she went out of the room, Becky turned around the threshold and looked about with her devouring eyes. If you're night here in the morning, miss, she said, it's been here tonight anyways. And anyways, I shan't forget it. She looked at each particular thing as if to commit it to memory. The fire was there, pointing with her finger, and the table was before it, and the lamp was there, and the light looked rosy red, and there was a satin cover on her bed, and a warm rug on the floor, and everything looked beautiful, and she paused a second and laid her hand on her stomach tenderly. There was soup and sandwiches and muffins, there was, and with this conviction of real reality at last, she went away. Through the mysterious agency which works in schools and among servants, it was quite well known in the morning that Sarah Crewe was in horrible disgrace, that Ermergard was under punishment, and that Becky would have been packed out of the house before breakfast, but that a scullery maid could not be dispensed with at once. The servants knew that she was allowed to stay, because Miss Minchin could not easily find another creature helpless and humble enough to work like a bounden slave for such a few shillings a week. The elder girls in the schoolroom knew that if Miss Minchin did not send Sarah away, it was for practical reasons of her own. She's growing so fast and learning such a lot somehow, said Jessie to Lavinia, that she will be given classes soon, and Miss Minchin knows that she will have to work for nothing. It was rather nasty of you, Miss Lavie, to tell about her having fun in the gar garret. How did you find out? I got out of Lottie. She was such a baby that she didn't know she was telling me. There was nothing nasty at all, speaking to Miss Minchin. I felt it my duty. She was being deceitful, and it's ridiculous that she could look so grand, and so much made of, in her rags and tatters. What were they doing when Miss Minchin caught them? Pretending some silly thing. Ermagard had taken up her hamper to share with Sarah and Becky. She never invites us to share things. Not that I care, but it's rather vulgar of her to share with servant girls and addicts. I wonder Miss Minchin didn't turn Sarah out, even if she does want her for a teacher. If she was turned out, where would she go? inquired Jessie a trifle anxiously. How do I know? snapped Lavinia. She'll look rather queer when she comes to the schoolroom in the morning, I should think, after what's happened. She had no dinner yesterday, and she's not to have any today. Jessie was not as ill-natured as she was silly. She picked up her little book with a jerk. Well, I think it's horrid she said. They have no right to starve her to death. When Sarah went into the kitchen that morning, the cook looked askance at her instead of the housemaids, but she passed them hurriedly. She had, in fact, overslept herself a little, and, as Becky had done the same, neither had time to see the other, and each had come downstairs in haste. Sarah went into the scullery. Becky was violently scrubbing a kettle, and was actually gurgling a little song in her throat. She looked up with her wildly elated face. It was there when I was awakened, Miss the blanket, she whispered excitedly. It was as real as if it was last night. So is mine, said Sarah. It's all there now, all of it. While I was dressing, I ate some of the cold things we left. Oh, laws, oh, laws. 
Becky uttered the exclamation in a sort of rapturous groan. She ducked her head under her kettle just in time as the cook came in from the kitchen. Miss Minchin had expected to see in Sarah, when she appeared in the schoolroom, very much what Lavinia had expected to see. Sarah had always been an annoying puzzle to her because severity never made her cry or look frightened. When she was scolded, she stood still and listened politely with a grave face. When she was punished, she performed her extra task on or went without her meals, making no complaint or outward sign of rebellion. The very fact that she never made an impudent answer seemed to Miss Minchin a kind of impudence in itself. But after yesterday's deprivation of meals, the violent scene of last night, the prostate hunger today, she surely must have broken down. It would be strange indeed if she did not come downstairs with pale cheeks and red eyes and happy, humbled face. Miss Minchin saw her for the first time when she entered the schoolroom to hear the little French class's lessons and superintendent's exercises. And she came in with a spring step, color in her cheeks, and a smile hovering about the corners of her mouth. It was the most astonishing thing Miss Minchin had ever known. It gave her quite a shock. What was the child made of? What could such a thing mean? She called her to her desk at once. You do not look as if you realize that you are in disgrace, she said. Are you absolutely heartened? The truth is that when one is still a child, or even if one has grown up and has been well-bred, and has slept long and softly and warm, when one has gone to sleep in the midst of a fairy story and has wakened to find it real, one cannot be happy, or even look as if one were. And one could not, if one tried, keep a glow of joy out of one's eyes. Miss Minchin was almost struck dumb by the look of Sarah's eyes when she lifted them and made her perfectly respectable answer. I beg your pardon, Miss Minchin, she said. I know I am in disgrace. Be good enough not to forget it, and look as if you had come into a fortune. It is an imperative, and remember, you are having no food today. Yes, Miss Minchin, Sarah answered. But she as she turned away, her heart leaped with a memory of what yesterday had been. If the magic had not saved me just in time, she thought, how horrible it would have been. She can be very hungry, whispered Lavinia. Just look at her. Perhaps she's pretending she's had a good breakfast, with a spiteful laugh. She's different from other people, said Jessie, watching Sarah with her class. Sometimes I'm a bit frightened of her. Ridiculous thing, said Lavinia. All through the day, the light was in Sarah's face and the color in her cheek. The servants cast puzzled glances at her and whispered to each other, and Miss Amelia's small blue eyes wore an expression of bewilderment, with such an audacious look of well-being under August's displeasure could mean that she could not understand. It was, however, just like Sarah's singular, obstinate way. She was probably determined to bring the matter out. One thing Sarah had resolved upon, as she thought things over, the wonders which had happened must be kept a secret, if such a thing were possible. If Miss Minchin should choose to mount the attic again, of course all would be discovered, but it did not seem likely that she would do it for some time at least unless she was led by suspicion. Ermagard and Lottie would be watched with such strictness that they did not dare steal out of their beds again. Ermagard could be told the story and trusted to keep it secret. If Lottie made discoveries, she could be bound to secrecy also. Perhaps the magic itself would help hide its own marvels. But whatever happens today, Sarah kept saying to herself all day, whatever happens, Somewhere in the world, there's a heavenly, kind person who is my friend. 
my friend. If I never know who it is, if I never can ever thank them, I shall never feel quite so lonely. Oh, the magic was good to me. If it was possible for weather to be worse than it had been the day before, it was worse this day. Weather, muddier, colder. There were more errands to be done. The cook was more irritable, and knowing Sarah that knowing that Sarah was in disgrace, she was more savage. But what does anything matter when one's magic has just pr proved itself one's friend? Sarah slept by the night before it was, had given her strength. She knew that she should sleep well and warmly, and even though she had naturally begun to be hungry again before evening, she felt that she could bear it until breakfast time on the following day, when her meals would surely be given to her again. It was quite late when she was at last allowed to go upstairs. She had been told to go into the schoolroom and study until ten o'clock, and she had become interested in her work and remained over her books later. When she reached the top flight of stairs and stood before the attic door, it must be confessed that her heart beat rather fast. Of course it might have all been taken away, she whispered, trying to be brave. It might only have been lent for me for just that one awful night, but it was lent to me. I had it. It was real. She pushed the door open and went inside. Once again, she gasped, shut the door, and stood with her back against it, looking from side to side. The magic had been there again. It actually had, and it had done even more than before. The fire was blazing and lovely leaping flames, more merry than ever. A number of new things had been brought into the attic, which so altered the look of it, that if she had not been past doubting, she would have rubbed her eyes. Upon the low table another supper stood, this time with cups and plates for Becky as well as herself. A piece of bright, heavy, strange embroidery covered the battered mantle, and on it some ornaments had been placed. All the bare, ugly things which could be covered with draperies had been concealed and made it look quite pretty. Some odd materials of rich colors had been fastened against the wall, and with fine, sharp tacks, so sharp that they could be pressed into the wood and plaster without hammering. Some brilliant fans were pinned up, and there were some large, several cushions, big and substantial enough to use as seats. A wooden box was covered with a rug, and some cushions lay on it, so that it wore quite the air of a sofa. Sarah slowly moved away from the door, and simply sat down and looked and looked again. It is exactly like something very come true, she said. There isn't the least difference. I feel as if I might wish for anything diamonds or bags of gold, and they would appear. That wouldn't be any stranger than this. Is this my garret? Am I the same cold, ragged, damp Sarah? And to think, I used to pretend and pretend and wish there were fairies. The one thing I always wanted was to see a fairy story come true. I am living in a fairy story. I feel as if I might be a fairy myself, and able to turn things into anything else. She rose and knocked upon the wall for the prisoner of the next cell, and the prisoner came. When she entered, she almost dropped in a heap on the floor. For quite a few seconds, she quite lost her breath. Oh, laws, she gasped. Oh, laws, miss, just as she did in the scullery. You see, said Sarah, on this night, Becky sat on a cushion upon the hearth rug and had a cup and a saucer of her own. When Sarah went to bed, she found that she had a thick mattress and big downy pillows. Her old mattress and pillows had been removed to Becky's bedstead and consequently, with these additions, Becky had been supplied with unheard of comfort. Where does all of it come from? Becky broke forth. 
boss, what does it mean, miss? Don't let us even ask, said Sarah. If it were not that I want to say, oh, thank you, I would rather not know. It makes it more beautiful. From that time, life became more wonderful day by day. The fairy story continued. Almost every day, something new was done. Some new comfort or ornament appeared each time Sarah opened the door at night, until, in a short time, the attic was a beautiful little room full of all sorts of odd and luxurious things. The ugly walls were gradually entirely covered with pictures and draperies. Ingenious pieces of folding furniture appeared. A bookshelf was hung up and filled with books. New comforts and conveniences appeared one by one until there seemed nothing left to be desired. When Sarah went downstairs in the morning, the remains of the supper were on the table, and when she returned to the attic in the evening, the magician had removed them and left another nice little meal. Miss Minchin was as harsh and insulting as ever, Miss Amelia as peevish, and the servants were as vulgar and rude. Sarah was up in errands in all weathers, and scolded and driven hither and thither, she was scarcely allowed to speak to Armagard and Lottie. Lavinia sneered at the increasing shabbiness of her clothes, and the other girls stared curiously at her when she appeared in the schoolroom. But what did it all matter when she was living in this serious, wonderful story? It was more romantic and delightful than anything she had ever invented to comfort her, starved young soul, and save herself from despair. Sometimes, when she was scolded, she could scarcely keep from smiling. If you only knew, she was saying to herself, if you only knew. The comfort and happiness she enjoyed were making her stronger, and she had them always to look forward to. If she came home from her errands wet and tired and hungry, she knew that she would soon be warm and well-fed after she had climbed the stairs. During the hardest day, she could occupy herself blissfully by thinking of what she should see when she opened the attic door, and wondering what new delight had been prepared for her. In a very short time, she began to look less thin. Color came into her cheeks, and her eyes did not seem too much big for her face. Sarah Crew looks wonderfully well, Miss Venture remarked disapprovingly to her sister. Yes, answered poor, silly Miss Amelia. She is absolutely fattening. She was beginning to look like a starved little crow. Starved? exclaimed Miss Minchin angrily. There was no reason why she should look starved. She always had plenty to eat. But of course, agreed Miss Amelia humbly, alarmed to find that she had, as usual, said the wrong thing. There is something very disagreeable in seeing that sort of thing in a child of her age, said Miss Mitchin with haughty vagueness. What sort of thing? Miss Amelia ventured. It might almost be called defiance, answered Miss Mitchin, feeling annoyed, because she knew the thing she resented was nothing like defiance, and she did not know what other and present term to use. The spirit and will of any other child would have been entirely humbled and broken by, by the changes she has had to submit to. But upon my word, she seems as little subdued as, as if she were a princess. Don't, do you remember? Put in the unwise, Miss Amelia, what she said to you the day in the schoolroom about what you would do if you found out that she was... No, I don't, said Miss Mitchin. Don't talk nonsense. But she remembered very clearly indeed. Very naturally, even Becky was beginning to look plumper and less frightened. She could not help it. She had her share in the secret fairy story, too. She had two mattresses, two pillows, plenty of bed covering, and every night a hot supper and a seat on cushions by the fire. The Bastille had melted away. The prisoners no longer existed. 
two comforted children sat in the midst of the delights. Sometimes Sarah read aloud from her books. Sometimes she learned her own lessons. Sometimes she sat and looked into the fire and tried to imagine who her friend could be and wish she could say to him some of the things in her heart. Then it came about that another wonderful thing happened. A man came to the door and left several parcels. All were addressed in large letters to the little girl in the right-hand attic. Sarah herself was sent to open the door and took them in. She laid the two largest parcels on the hall table and was looking at the address when Miss Minchin came down the stairs and saw her. Take the things to the young lady to whom they belong, she answered severely. Don't stand there staring at them. They belong to me, answered Sarah quietly. To you, exclaimed Miss Minchin. What do you mean? I don't know where they came from, said Sarah, but they are addressed to me. I sleep in the right-hand attic. Becky has the other one. Miss Minchin came to her side and looked at the parcels with an excited expression. What's in them? she demanded. I don't know, replied Sarah. Open them, she ordered. Sarah did as she was told. When the packages were unfolded, Miss Minchin's countenance wore suddenly a singular expression. What she saw was pretty and comfortable clothing, clothing of different kinds, shoes, stockings, and gloves, and a warm and beautiful coat. There were even a nice hat and an umbrella. They were all good and expensive things. And on the pocket of the coat was pinned a paper, on which was written these words, To be worn every day, will be replaced by others when necessary. Miss Minchin was quite agitated. This was an incident which suggested strange things to her sore mind. Could it be that she made a mistake? After all, that the neglected child had some powerful through eccentric friend in the background, perhaps some mysteriously unknown relation who had suddenly traced her whereabouts and chose to provide for her in this mysterious and fantastic way. Relations were sometimes very odd, particularly rich old bachelor uncles, who did not care for having children near them. A man of that sort might prefer to overlook his young relations while fair distance. Such a person, however, would be sure to be crotchety and hot-tempered enough to be easily offended. It would not be very pleasant if there was such a one, and he should learn all the truth about the thin, shabby clothes and the scant clothes and the hard work. She felt very queer indeed, and very uncertain, and she gave a side glance at Sarah. Well, she said in a voice such as never once used since the little girl lost her father, someone is very kind to you, as the things have been sent, and you are to have new ones when they are worn out. You may as well go and put them on and look respectable. After you are dressed, you may come downstairs and learn your lessons in the schoolroom. You need not to go out on any errands today. About half an hour afterward, when the schoolroom door opened and Sarah walked in, the entire seminary was struck dumb with amazement. My word, ejaculated Jesse, jogging, looking at his elbow, look at the Princess Sarah. Everyone was looking, and when Lavinia looked, she turned quite red. It was the Princess Sarah indeed, at least since the days when she had been a princess. Sarah had never looked as she did now. She did not see the Sarah that they had seen come down the back stairs a few hours ago. She was dressed in the kind of frock Lavinia had been used to envying her the possession of. It was deep and warm in color and beautifully made. Her slender feet looked as if they had done when Jessie had admired them, and the hair whose heavy locks had made her look rather like a Shetland pony when it fell loose about her small, odd face 
was tied back with a ribbon. Perhaps someone has left her a fortune, Jessie whispered. I always thought something would happen to her. She is so queer. Perhaps the diamond mines have suddenly appeared again, said Lavinia scathingly. Don't please her by staring at her in that way, you silly thing. Sarah, broke in Miss Minchin's deep voice, come and sit here. And while the whole schoolroom stared and pushed with elbows and scarcely made any effort to conceal its excited curiosity, Sarah went to her old seat of honor and bent her head over her books. That night, when she went to her room after she and Becky had eaten their supper, she sat and looked in the fire seriously for a long time. Are you making something up in your head, miss? Becky inquired with respectful softness. When Sarah sat in silence and looked into the coals with dreaming eyes, it generally meant that she was making a new story. But this time she was not, and she shook her head. No, she answered. I am wondering what I ought to do. Becky stared still respectfully. She was filled with something approaching reverence for everything Sarah did and said. I cannot think about my friend, Sarah explained. If he wants to keep himself a secret, it would be rude to try and find out who he is. But I do so want him to know how thankful I am of him, and how happy he has made me. Anyone who is kind wants to know when people have made, been made happy. They care for that more than being thanked. I wish. I do wish. She stopped short, because her eyes at that instant fell upon something standing on a table in the corner. It was something she had found in the room when she came up only two days before. It was a little writing case fitted with paper and envelopes and pens and ink. Oh, she exclaimed, why did I not think of that before? She rose and went to the corner and brought the case back to the fire. I can write to him, she said joyfully, and leave it on the table. Then perhaps the person who takes the things away will take it too. I won't ask him anything. He won't mind my thanking him, I feel sure. So, she wrote a note, and this is what she said. I hope you will not think it is impolite that I should write this note to you when you wish to keep yourself a secret. Please believe I do not mean to be impolite or try to find out anything at all. Only I want to thank you for being so kind to me, so heavenly kind, and making everything like a fairy story. I am so grateful to you, and I am so happy, and so is Becky. Becky feels just as thankful as I do, and it is all just as beautiful and wonderful to her as it is to me. We used to be so lonely and cold and hungry, and now, oh, just think what you have done for us. Please let me just say these words. It seems as if I ought to say them. Thank you, thank you, thank you. The little girl in the attic. The next morning she left, left this on the table, and in the evening it had been taken away with the other things, so she knew the magician had received it, and she was happier for the thought. She was reading one of her new books to Becky just before they went to their respective beds, when her attention was attracted by a sound of the skylight. When she looked up for a page, she saw that Becky had heard the sound also, as she had turned her head to look and was listening rather nervously. Something there's miss, she whispered. Yes, said Sarah slowly. Sounds rather like a cat trying to get in. She left her chair and went to the skylight. It was a queer little sound she heard, like a soft scratching, and suddenly she remembered something and laughed. She remembered a quaint little intruder who had made his way into the attic once before. She had seen him that very afternoon, sitting disconsolately on a table, on a table before a window in the Indian gentleman's house. Suppose, 
she whispered in pleasant excitement. Just suppose it was the monkey who got away again. Oh, I wish it was. She climbed on a chair very cautiously, raised a skylight, and peeped out. It had been snowing all day, and on the snow, quite near her, crouched a tiny, shivering figure whose small black face wrinkled itself piteously at the sight of her. He is the monkey, she cried out. He's crept out of the Lascar's attic, and he saw the light. Becky ran to her side. Are you going to let him in, miss? She said. Yes, Sarah said joyfully. It's too cold for monkeys to be out. They're delicate. I'll coax him in. She put a hand out delicately, speaking in a coaxing voice, as she spoke the sparrows into Michelle's deck, as if she were some friendly little animal herself, and lovingly understood her their timid wildness. Come along, monkey darling, she said. I won't hurt you. He knew that she would not hurt him. He knew it before she set her, laid her soft, caressing little paw on him and drew him toward her. He had felt human love in the slim brown hands of Ramdas, and he felt it in hers. He let her lift him through the skylight, and when he found himself in her arms, he cuddled up to her breast and took friendly hold of a piece of her hair, looking up into her face. Nice monkey, nice monkey, she crooned, kissing his funny head. Oh, I do love little animal things. He was evidently glad to get to the fire, and when she sat down and held him on her knee, he looked from her to Becky with mingled interest and appreciation. He is plain looking, miss, ain't he? said Becky. He looks like a very ugly baby, laughed Sarah. I beg your pardon, monkey, but I am glad you are not a baby. Your mother couldn't be proud of you, and no one would dare to say that you look like any of your relations. Oh, but I do like you. She leaned back in the chair and reflected. Perhaps he's sorry he's so ugly, she said, and it's always on his mind. I wonder if he has a mind. Monkey, my love, have you a mind? But the monkey only put up a tiny paw and scratched his head. What shall you do with him? Becky asked. I shall let him sleep with me tonight and take him back to the Indian gentleman tomorrow. I am sorry to take you back, monkey, but you must go. You ought to be the fondest of your own family, and I am not a real relation. And when she went to bed, she made him a nest at her feet, and he curled up and slept there as if he were a baby, and much pleased with his quarters. Chapter 17 It is the Child The next afternoon, three members of the large family sat in the Indian gentleman's library, doing their best to cheer him up. They had been allowed to come in to perform this office because he had specially invited them. He had been living in a state of suspense for some time, and today he was waiting for a certain event very anxiously. This event was the return of Mr. Carmichael from Moscow. His stay there had been prolonged from week to week. On his first arrival there, he had not been able satisfactorily to trace the family he had gone in search of. When he felt at last sure that he had found them and had gone to their house, he had been told that they were absent on a journey. His efforts to reach them had been unavailing, so he decided to remain in Moscow until the return. Mr. Carrisford sat in his reclining chair, and Janet sat on the floor beside him. He was very fond of Janet. Nora had found a footstool, and Donald was astride the tiger's head which ornamented the red made of animal skin. It must be owned that he was riding it rather violently. Don't chirp so loud, Donald, Janet said. When you come to cheer an animal person up, you don't cheer him up at the top of your voice. 
Perhaps cheering up is too loud, Mr. Carisford? Turning to the Indian gentleman. But he only patted her shoulder. No, it isn't, he answered. And it keeps me from thinking too much. I'm going to be quiet, Donald shouted. We'll be all as quiet as mice. Mice don't make a noise like that, said Janet. Donald made a bridle of his handkerchief and bounced up and down on the tiger's head. A whole lot of mice might, he said cheerfully. A thousand mice might. I don't believe fifty thousand mice would, said Janet severely. And we have to be as quiet as one mouse. Mr. Carisford laughed and patted her shoulder again. Papa won't be very long now, she said. May we talk about the little lost girl? I don't think I could talk much about anything else just now, the Indian gentleman answered, knitting his forehead with a tired look. We like her so much, said Nora. We call her the little unfairy princess. Why? the Indian gentleman inquired. Because the fancies of the large families always made him forget things a little. It was Janet who answered. It's because, though she is not exactly a fairy, she will be so rich when she is found that she will be like a princess in a fairy tale. We called her the fairy princess at first, but it didn't quite suit. Is it true, said Nora, that her papa gave all his money to a friend and put it in mine had diamonds in it, and then the friend thought she had lost it all and ran away because he felt as if he were a robber? But he wasn't really, you know, put in Janet hastily. The Indian gentleman took hold of her hand quickly. No, he wasn't really he said. I am sorry for the friend, Janet said. I can't help it. He didn't mean to do it, and it would break his heart. I am sure it would break his heart. You are an understanding little woman, Janet, the Indian gentleman said. Did you tell Mr. Carisford, Donald shouted again, about the little girl who isn't a beggar? Did you tell him that she has new nice clothes? Perhaps she's been found by someone when she was lost. There's a cab, exclaimed Janet. It's stopping before the door. It's Papa. They all ran to the window to look up. Yes, it's Papa, Donna proclaimed, but there is no little girl. All three of them incontinently fled from the room and tumbled into the hall. It was in this way they always welcomed their father. They were to be heard jumping up and down, clapping their hands, and being caught up and kissed. Mr. Carisford made an effort to rise and sank back into his chair. It is of no use, he said. What a wreck I am. Mr. Carmichael's voice approached the door. No, children, he was saying. You may come in after I have talked to Mr. Carsford. Go and play with Ramdas. Then the door opened and he came in. He looked rosier than ever, and he brought an atmosphere of freshness and health with him. But his eyes were disappointed and anxious as they met the invalid's look of eager question even as they grasped each other's hands. What news? Mr. Carisford asked. The child the Russian people adopted? She is not the child we are looking for, was Mr. Carmichael's answers. She is much younger than Captain Crew's little girl. Her name is Emily Carew. I have seen and talked to her. The Russians were able to give me every detail. How wearied and miserable the Indian gentleman looked. His hand dropped from Mr. Carmichael's. Then the search has to be begun over again, he said. That is all. Please sit down. Mr. Carmichael took a seat. Somehow he had gradually grown fond of this unhappy man. 
He was himself so well and happy, and so surrounded by cheerfulness and love, that desolation and broken health seemed pitifully unbearable things. If there had been the sound of just one gay little high-pitched voice in the house, it would have been so much less forlorn. And that a man should be compelled to carry about in his breast the thought that he had seemed to wrong and desert a child was not a thing one could face. Come, come, he said in his cheery voice, we'll find her yet. We must begin at once. No time must be lost. Mr. Carrisford fed in. Have you any new suggestion to make? Any whatsoever? Mr. Carmichael felt rather restless, and he rose and began to pace the room with a thoughtful, though uncertain face. Well, perhaps, he said. I don't know what it may be worth. The fact is, an idea occurred to me as I was thinking the thing over in the train on the journey from Dover. What was it? If she's alive, she's somewhere. Yes, she is somewhere. We have searched the schools in Paris. Let us give up Paris and begin London. That was my idea, to search London. There are enough schools in London, said Mr. Carrisford. Then he slightly started roused by the recollection. By the way, there is one next door. Then we will begin there. We cannot begin nearer the next door. No, said Carrisford. There is a child there who interests me, but she is not a pupil. And she's a little dark, forlorn creature, as unlike poor crew as a child could be. Perhaps the magic was at work again at that very moment. The beautiful magic. It really seemed as if it might be so. What was it that brought Ramdas into the room? Even as his master spoke, salaaming respectfully, but with a scarcely concealed touch of excitement in his dark, flashing eyes? Sahib, he said. The child herself has come. The child the Sahib felt pity for. She brings back the monkey who had again run away to her attic under the roof. I have asked that she remain. It was my thought that it would please the Sahib to see and speak with her. Who is she? inquired Mr. Carmichael. God knows, Mr. Carryford answered. She is the child I spoke of, a little drudge at the school. He waved his hand to Ram Dass and addressed him. Yes, I should like to see her. Go and bring her in. Then he turned to Mr. Carmichael. Well, you haven't been away, he explained. I have been desperate. The days were so dark and long. Ramdas told me of this child's miseries, and together we invented a romantic plan to help her. I suppose it was a childish thing to do, but it gave me something to plan and think of. Without the help of an agile, soft-footed oriental like Ramdas, however, it could not be done. Then Sarah came to the room. She carried the monkey in her arms, and he evidently did not intend to be apart from her if he could be helped. He was clinging to her and chattering, and the interesting excitement of finding herself in the Indian gentleman's room had brought a flush to Sarah's cheeks. Your monkey ran away again, she said in a pretty voice. He came to my garret window last night, and I took him in because it was cold. I would have brought him back if it had not been so late. I knew you were ill and might not like to be disturbed. The Indian gentleman's hollow eyes twirled her with curious interest. That was very thoughtful of you, he said. Sarah looked toward Ramdas, who stood in the door. Shall I give him to the Lascar? She answered. She asked. 
How do you know he's a Lascar? Said the Indian gentleman, smiling a little. Oh, I know Lascars, Sarah said, handing over the reluctant monkey. I was born in India. The Indian gentleman sat upright so suddenly and with such a change of expression that she, for a moment, was quite startled. You were born in India, he exclaimed. Were you? Come here. And he held out his hand. Sarah went to him and laid her hand in his, as he seemed to want to take it. She stood still, and her green-gray eyes met his wonderingly. Something seemed to be the matter with him. You live next door, she demanded. Yes, I live in Miss Minchin's seminary. But you are not one of the pupils. A strange little smile hovered about Sarah's mouth. She hesitated a moment. I do not know exactly what I am, she replied. Why not? At first I was a pupil and a parlor boarder, but now you were a pupil? What are you now? The queer little sad smile was on Sarah's lips again. I sleep in the attic, next to a scullery maid, she said. I run errands for the cook. I do anything she tells me, and I teach the little ones their lessons. Question her, Carmichael, said Mr. Carisford, sinking back as if he had lost his strength. Question her. I cannot. The big, kind father of the large families knew how to question little girls. Sarah realized how much practice he had had when he spoke to her in his nice, encouraging voice. What do you mean by at first, my child? He inquired. When I was first taken there by my papa. Where is your papa? He died, said Sarah, very quietly. He lost all his money and there was none left for me. There was no one to take care of me or pay, to pay Miss Minchin. Carmichael! The Lindian gentleman cried out loudly, Carmichael! We must not frighten her, Mr. Carmichael said aside to him in a quick, low voice, and he added aloud to Sarah, So you were sent up to the attic and made into a little drudge. That was about it, wasn't it? There was no one to take care of me, said Sarah. There was no money. I belonged to nobody. How did your father lose his money? The Indian gentleman broke in breathlessly. He did not lose it himself, Sarah answered, wondering still more each moment. He had a friend he was very fond of. He was very fond of him. It was his friend who took his money. He trusted his friend too much. The Indian gentleman's breath came out more quickly. The friend might have meant to do no harm, he said. It might have happened through a mistake. Sarah did not know how unrelenting her quiet yet voice sounded as she answered. If she had known, she would have surely tried to soften it for the Indian gentleman's sake. The suffering was just as bad for my papa, she said. It killed him. What was your father's name? The Indian gentleman said. Tell me. His name was Ralph Crewe. Sarah answered, feeling startled. Captain Crewe, he died in India. The haggard face contracted, and Ram Dass sprang to his master's side. Carmichael! The invalid gasped. It is the child! The child! For a moment, Sarah thought that he was going to die. Ram Dass poured out drops from a bottle and held them to his lips. Sarah stood near, trembling a little. She looked in a bewildered way at Mr. Carmichael. What child am I? she faltered. He was your father's friend, Mr. Carmichael answered her. Don't be frightened. 
We have been looking for you for two years. Sarah put her head up to her forehead and her mouth trembled. She spoke as if it were she were in a dream. And I was at Miss Minchin all the while. She half whispered, just on the other side of the wall. Chapter 17 I Tried Not to Be It was pretty comfortable Mrs. Carmichael who explained everything. She was sent for at once and came across the square to take Sarah in her warm arms and make clear to her all that had happened. The excitement of the totally unexpected discovery had been temporary almost empowering to Mr. Carisford in his weak condition. Upon my word, he said faintly to Mr. Carmichael, when it was suggested that the little girl should go in, up into another room. I feel as if I do not want to learn lose sight of her. I will take care of her, Janet said, and Mamma will come in a few minutes. And it was Janet who led her away. We are so glad you are found, she said. You don't know how glad that we are found. you are found. Donald stood with his hand in his pockets and glazed at Sarah with reflecting and self-reproachful eyes. If I just asked what your name was when I gave you my sixpence, he said, you would have told me it was Sarah Crew, and then you would have been found in a minute. Then Mrs. Carmichael came in. She looked very much moved and suddenly took Sarah in her arms and kissed her. You look bewildered, poor child, she said, and it is not to be wondered at. Sarah could only think of one thing. Was he? she said with a glance toward the closed door of the library. Was he the wicked friend? Oh, do tell me. Mrs. Carmichael was crying as she kissed her again. She felt as if she ought to be kissed very often because she had not been kissed in so long. He was not wicked, my dear, she answered. He did not really lose your papa's money. He only thought he had lost it. And because he loved you loved him so much of his grief made him so ill that for a time he was not right in his mind. He almost died of brain fever. And long before he began to recover, your poor papa was dead. Then he did not know where to find me, murmured Sarah, and I was so near. Somehow she could not forget that she had been so near. He believed that you were in school in France, Mrs. Carmichael explained, and he was continually misled by false clues. He has looked for you everywhere. When he saw you pass by, looking so sad and neglected, he did not dream that you were his friend's poor child. But because you were a little girl too, he was so sorry for you, and he wanted to make you happier. And he told Ramdas to climb into your window and try to make you comfortable. Sarah gave a start of joy, and her whole look changed. Did Ramdas bring the things? she cried out. Did he tell Ramdas to do it? Did he make the dream come true? Y yes, yes, my dear. He is kind and good, and he was sorry for you for little lost Sarah Crew's sake. The library door opened and Mr. Carmichael appeared, calling Sarah to him with a gesture. Mr. Carisford is better already. He wants you to come see him. Sarah did not wait. When the Indian gentleman looked at her as she entered, he saw that her face was all alight. She went and stood before his chair with her hands clasped together against her breast. You sent the things to me, she said in a joyful, emotional little voice. The beautiful, beautiful things? You sent them. Yes, poor dear child, I did, he answered her. 
He was weak and broken with a long illness and trouble, but he looked at her with a look she remembered in her father's eyes. That look of loving her and wanting to take her in his arms, it made her kneel down by him, just as she used to kneel by her father when they were the dearest friends and lovers in the world. Then it is you who are my friend, she said. It is you who are my friend. And she dropped her face on his thin hand and kissed it again and again. The man will be himself in three weeks, Mr. Michael Carmichael said aside to his wife. Look at his face already. In fact, he did look changed. Here was the little missus, and he had a new things to think of and plan for already. In the first place, there was Miss Minchin. She must be interviewed and told of the change which had taken place in the fortunes of her pupil. Sarah was not to return to the seminary at all. The Indian gentleman was very determined upon that point. She must remain where she was, and Mr. Carmichael should go and see Miss Minchin himself. I am glad I need not to go back, said Sarah. She will be very angry. She does not like me, though perhaps it is my fault, because I do not like her. But, oddly enough, Miss Minchin made it unnecessary Mr. Carmichael to go to her by actually coming and searching for people herself. She had wanted Sarah for something, and on inquiry, had heard an astonishing thing. One of the housemaids had seen her steal out of the area with something hidden under her cloak, and had also seen her go up the stairs of the next door and enter the house. What does she mean? cried Miss Minchin to Miss Amelia. I don't know. I'm sure sister answered miss amelia unless she has made friends with him because he has lived in india it would be just like her to thrust herself upon him and try to gain his sympathies in some impertinent fashion said miss Minchin. she must have been in the house two hours i will not allow such presumption i shall go and inquire into the matter and apologize for her intrusion sarah was sitting on a footstool close to mr carrisford's knee and listening to some of the many things he felt unnecessary to, to explain to her when Ramdas announced the visitor's arrival. Sarah rose involuntary and became rather pale, but Mr. Carisford saw that she stood quietly and showed none of the ordinary signs of child terror. Miss Minchin entered the room in a sternly dignified manner. She was correctly and well-dressed and rigidly polite. I am sorry to disturb Mr. Carisford, she said. But I have exclamations to make. I am Miss Minchin, the proprietress of the young lady's seminary next door. The Indian gentleman looked at her for a moment in silent scrutiny. He was a man who had naturally a rather hot temper, and he did not wish it to get too much of the better of him. So you are Miss Minchin? he asked. I am, sir. In that case, the Indian gentleman replied, you have arrived at the right time. My solicitor, Mr. Carmichael, was just at the point of going to see you. Mr. Carmichael bowed slightly, and Miss Minchin looked from him to Mr. Carrisford in amazement. Your solicitor, she said, I do not understand. I come here as a matter of duty. I have just discovered that you have been intruded upon through the forwardness of one of my pupils, a charity pupil. I came to explain that she intruded without my knowledge. She turned upon Sarah. Go home at once, she commanded indignantly. You shall be severely punished. Go home at once. The Indian gentleman drew Sarah to his side and patted her head. She is not going. 
Miss Minchin felt rather as if she must be losing her senses. Not going, she repeated. No, said Mr. Carisford. She is not going home. If you give your house that name, her home for the future will be with me. Miss Minchin fell back in amazed indignation. With you? With you, sir? What does this mean? Kindly explain the matter, Carmichael, said the Indian gentleman, and get it over as quickly as possible. And he made Sarah sit down again and held her hands in his, which was another trick of her papa's. Then Mr. Carmichael explained in the quiet, level-toned, steady manner of a man who knew his subject and its legal significance, which was a thing Miss Mitchell understood as a businesswoman and did not enjoy. Mr. Carrisford, madame, he said, was an intimate friend of the late Captain Crewe. He was his partner in certain large investments. The fortune which Captain Crewe supposed he had lost has been recovered and is now in Mr. Carrisford's hand. The fortune, cried Miss Minchin, and she really lost her color as she uttered the exclamations. Sarah's fortune? It will be Sarah's fortune, replied Mr. Carmichael rather coldly. It is Sarah's fortune now, in fact. Certain events had increased it enormously. The diamond mines have retrieved themselves. The diamond mines? Miss Minchin gasped out. If this was true, nothing so horrible, she felt, had ever happened to her since she was born. The diamond mines, Mr. Carmichael repeated, and he could not help adding, with a rather sly, unlawyer-like smile, There are not many princesses, Miss Minchin, who are richer than your little charity pupil, Sarah Crewe, will be. Mr. Carrisford has been searching for her for nearly two years. He has found her at last he will keep her. After which, he asked Miss Minchin to sit down while he explained matters to her fully, and went into such detail as was necessary to make it quite clear to her that Sarah's future was an assured one, and that what had seemed to be lost was to be restored to her tenfold. Also, that she had in Miss Carisbird a guardian as well as a friend. Miss Minchin was not a clever woman, and her excitement she was silly enough to make one desperate effort to retain, regain which she could not help seeing she had lost through her own worldly folly. He found her under my care, she protested. I have done everything for her, but for me she was starved in the streets. Here the little onion gentleman lost his temper. As to starving in the streets, he said, she might have starved more comfortably there than in your attic. Captain Crewe left her in my charge, Miss Mitchin argued. She must return to it until she is of age. She can be a part of the border again. She must finish her education. The law will interfere in my behalf. Come, come, Miss Minchin, Mr. Carmichael interposed. The law will do nothing of the sort. If Sarah herself wishes to return to you, I dare say Mr. Carrisford might not refuse to allow it. But that rests with Sarah. Then, said Miss Minchin, I appeal to Sarah. I have not spoiled you, perhaps, she said awkwardly to the little girl. But you know that your papa was pleased with your progress, and <clears throat> I have always been fond of you. Sarah's green-gray eyes fixed themselves on her with the quiet, clear look Miss Minchin particularly disliked. 
Have you, Miss Minchin? she said. I did not know that. Miss Minchin reddened and drew herself up. You ought to have known it, she said. But children, unfortunately, never know what is best for them. Amelia and I always said you were the cleverest child in the school. Will you not do your duty to your poor papa and come home with me? Sarah took a step toward her and stood still. She was thinking of the day when she had been told that she belonged to nobody and was in danger of being turned out into the street. She was thinking of the cold, hungry hours she had spent alone with Emily and Wachelsdeck in the attic. She looked Miss Minchin steadily in the face. You know why I will not go home with you, Miss Minchin, she said. You know quite well. A hot flush showed itself on Miss Minchin's hard, angry face. You will never see your companions again, she began. I will see that Ermagard and Lottie are kept away. Mr. Carmichael stopped her with polite firmness. Excuse me, he said. She will see anyone she wishes to see. The parents of Miss Crewe's fellow pupils are not likely to refuse her invitations to invite her, to visit her at her guardian's house. Mr. Carrisford will attend to that. It must be confessed that even Miss Minchin flinched. This was worse than the eccentric bachelor uncle who might have peppery temper and be easily offended at the treatment of his niece. A woman of a sordid mind could easily believe that the most people would not refuse to allow their children to remain friends with the little heiress of diamond mines. And if Mr. Carisford chose to tell certain of her patrons how unhappy Sarah Crewe had been made, many unpleasant things might happen. You have not undertaken an easy charge, she said to the Indian gentleman as she turned to leave the room. You will discover that very soon. The child is neither truthful nor grateful, I suppose, to Sarah, that you feel that you are a princess again. Sarah looked down and flushed a little, because she thought her pet fancy might not be easy for strangers, even nice ones to understand at first. I tried not to be anything else, she answered in a low voice. Even when I was coldest and hungriest, I tried not to be. Now it would not be necessary to try, said Miss Minchin acidly, as Ramdas salamed her out of the room. She returned home and, going to her sitting room, sent at once for Miss Amelia. She sat closeted with her all the rest of the afternoon, and it must be admitted that poor Miss Amelia passed through more than one bad quarter of an hour. She shed a good many tears and mopped her eyes a good deal. One of her unfortunate remarks almost caused her sister to snap her head off entirely, but it resulted in an unusual manner. I am not as clever as you are, sister, she said, and I am always afraid to say things to you for fear of making you angry. Perhaps if I were not so timid, it would be better for this school and for us both. I must say, I have often thought it would have been better if you had been less severe on Sarah Crewe, and had seen that she was decently dressed and more comfortable. I know she was worked too hard for a child of age and I know she was only half-fed. How dare you say such a thing, exclaimed Miss Minchin. I don't know how I dare, Miss Amelia answered, with a kind of reckless courage. But now I've begun, I may well finish, whatever happens to me. The child was a clever child and a good child, and she would have paid you for any kindness you had shown her. But you didn't show her any. The fact was, she was too clever for you, and you always disliked her for that reason. She used to see through us both. Amelia, gasped her infuriated elder, 
looking as if she would box her ears and knock her cap, cap off, as she had often done to Becky. But Miss Amelia's disappointment had made her hysterical enough not to care what occurred next. She did, she did, she cried. She saw through us both. She saw that you were a hard-hearted, worldly woman, and that I was a weak fool, and that we were both vulgar and mean enough to grovel on her knees before her money and behave ill to her because it was taken from her, though she behaved herself like a little princess even when she was a beggar. She did, she did, like a princess. And her hysterics got the better of the poor woman, and she began to laugh and cry both at once and rock herself backwards and forwards in a way that made Miss Minchin stare aghast. Now you've lost her, she cried, and some other school will get her and her money, and if she were like any other child, she'd tell how she's been treated, and all our pupils will be taken away and we should be ruined, and it serves us right, but it serves you right more than it does me, for you are a hard woman, Maria Minchin. You're a hard, selfish, worldly woman. And she was in danger of making so much noise with her hysterical chokes and gurgles that her sister was obliged to go to her and apply salt and salvatale to quiet her instead of her pouring forth her indignation and her audacity. And from that time forward, it may be mentioned, the elder Miss Minchin actually began to stand a little awe of her sister, who, while she looked so foolish, was evidently not quite as foolish as she looked, and might, consequently, break out and speak truths people did not want to hear. That evening, when the pupils were gathered together before the fire in the schoolroom, as was their custom before going to bed, Ermagard came in with her letter in hand and a queer expression on her round face. It was queer, because while it was an expression of a delighted excitement, it was combined with such amazement as seemed to belong to a kind of shock just received. "'What is the matter?' cried two or three voices at once. "'Is it anything to do with that row that has been going on?' said Lavinia eagerly. "'There has been such a row in Miss Minchin's room. Miss Amelia has had something like hysterics and has had to go to bed.' Armagard answered them slowly, as if she were half stunned. "'I've just had this letter from Sarah,' she said holding it out to let them see what the long letter it was. From Sarah! Every voice joined in that exclamation. Where is she? Elmer shrieked Jessie. Next door, said Ermagard. With the Indian gentleman. Where? Where? Has she been sent away? Does Miss Mitchin know? Was the row about that? Why did she write? Tell us! Tell us! There was a perfect babble, and Lottie began to cry plaintively. Armagard answered them slowly, as if she were half plunged out into what, at the moment, seemed the most important and self-explaining thing. There were diamond mines. There were. Open mouths and open eyes confronted her. They were real. It was all a mistake about them. Something happened for a time, and Mr. Carisford thought they were ruined. Who is Mr. Carisford? shouted Jessie. The Indian gentleman. And Captain Crewe thought so too, and he died. And Mr. Carisford had brain fever and ran away, and he almost died. And he did not know where Sarah was, and it turned out there were millions and millions of diamonds in the mines, and half of them belonged to Sarah, and they belonged to her while she was living in the attic, with Noah but Mattel's deck for a friend, and a cook ordering her about. And Mr. Carisford found her this afternoon, and he has got her in his home, and she will never come back. She will be more a princess than she ever was. A hundred and fifty thousand times more, 
and I am going to see her tomorrow. There. Even Miss Minchin herself could scarcely have controlled the uproar after this, and though she had heard the noise, she did not try. She was not in the mood to face anything more than she was facing her room while Miss Amelia was weeping in bed. She knew that the news had penetrated the walls in some mysterious manner, and every servant and every child would go to bed talking about it. So until almost midnight, the entire seminary, realizing somehow that all rules were laid aside, crowned around her garden schoolroom and heard, and heard read and reread the letter containing a story which was quite as wonderful as any Sarah herself had ever invented, and which had the amazing charm of having happened to Sarah herself and a mystic Indian gentleman in the very next house. Becky, who had heard too also, managed to creep upstairs earlier than usual. She wanted to get away from people and go and look at the little magic room once more. She did not know what would happen to it. It was not likely that it would be left to Miss Minchin. It would be taken away, and the attic would be bare and empty again. Glad as she was for Sarah's sake, she went up the flat flight of stairs with a lump in her throat and tears blowing her sight. There would be no fire tonight, and no rosy lamp, and no supper, and no princess sitting in the glow reading or telling stories. No princess! She choked down a sob as she pushed the outer door open, and then she broke into a low cry. The lamp was flushing the room, the fire was blazing, and supper was waiting. Ram Das was sitting there, smiling into her startled face. Missy Sahib remembered, he said. She told the Sahib all. She wished you to know the good fortune which has befallen her. Behold the letter on the tray she has written. She did not wish that you should go to sleep unhappy. The Sahib commands you to come with him tomorrow. You are to be the attendant of her. Tonight I take these things back over the roof. And having this with a, said this with a beaming face, he made a little salam and slipped the skylight with an agile silentness of movement, which showed Becky how easily he had done it before. In our very last chapter, chapter 19, Anne. Never had such joy reigned in the nursery of the large family. Never had they dreamed of such delights as resulted from an intimate acquaintance with the little girl who was not a beggar. The mere fact of her sufferings and adventures made her a priceless possession. Everybody wanted to be told over and over again the things which had happened to her. When one was sitting by a warm fire in a big glowing room, it was quite delightful to hear how cold it could be in an attic. It must be admitted that the attic was rather delighted in, and its coldness and bareness quite sank into insignificant when Wichel's deck was remembered, and one heard about the sparrows and things one could see if one climbed on the table and stuck one's head and shoulders out of the skylight. Of course, the thing they loved best was the story of the banquet and the dream which was true. Sarah told it for the first time the day after she had been found. Several members of the large family came to take tea with her, and, as they sat or curled up on the hearthrug, she told the story in her own way, and the Indian gentleman listened and watched her. When she had finished, she looked up at him and put her hand in his knee. That is my part, she said. Now, won't you tell your private Uncle Tom? He had, oh, he had asked her to call him always Uncle Tom. I don't know your part yet, and it must be beautiful. So he told him how, when he sat alone, ill and dull and irritable, Ramdas had tried to distract him by describing the passers-by, and there was one child who passed oftener than anyone else, and he began to be interested in her. 
partly perhaps because he was thinking a great deal of a little girl, and partly because Rondas had been able to relate the incident of his visit to the attic in the chase of the monkey. He had described its cheerless look in the bearing of a child, bearing up the child, who seemed as if she was not a class of those who were treated as judges and servants. Bit by bit, Ramdas had made discoveries concerning the wretchedness of her life. He had found out how easy a matter it was to climb across a few yards of roof to skylight, and this fact had been the beginning of all that followed. Sahib, he had said one day, I could cross the slates and make the child a fire when she is out on some errand. When she returned, wet and cold, to find it blazing, she would think a magician had done it. The idea had been so fanciful that Mr. Carrisford's sad face had lighted with a smile, and Ramdas had been so filled with rapture that he had enlarged upon it, and explained to his master how simple it would be to accomplish numbers of other things. He had shown a childlike pleasure and adventure, and the preparations for the carrying out of the plan had filled many a day with interest, and which would have otherwise dragged wearily. On the night of the frustrated banquet, Ramdas had kept watch, all his, all his packages being the readiness in the attic, which was his own, and the person who was to help him had waited with him, as interested as himself in the odd adventure. Ramdas had been laying flat upon the slates, looking at him at the skylight. When the banquet had come to its disastrous conclusion, he had been sure of the profoundness of Sarah's weary sleep, and then, with a dark lantern, had crept into the room, while his companion remained outside and handed the things to him. When Sarah had stirred ever so faintly, Ramdas had closed the lantern slide and laid flat upon the floor. These and many other exciting things the children found out by asking a thousand questions. I am so glad, Sarah said. I am so glad it was you who were my friend. There never were such friends as these two became. Somehow they seemed to suit each other in a wonderful way. The Indian gentleman had never had a companion he quite liked as much as he liked Sarah. In a month's time, he was, as Mr. Carmichael had prophesied he would be, a new man. He was always amused and interested, and he began to find an actual pleasure in the possession of the wealth he had imagined that he loathed the burden of. There were so many charming things to plan for Sarah. There was a little joke between them that he was a magician, and it was one of his pleasures to invent things to surprise her. She found beautiful new flowers growing in her room whimsical little gifts tucked under pillows, and once, as they sat together in the evening, they heard a scratch of a heavy paw on the door, and when Sarah went out to find out what it was, there stood a great dog, a splendid Russian boarhound, with a grand silver and gold collar, bearing an inscription raised in letters, I am Boris, they read, I serve the Princess Sarah. There was nothing the Indian gentleman loved more than the recollection of the little princess in rags and tatters. The afternoons in which the large family, or Armagard, and Lottie, gathered to rejoice together, they were delightful. But the hours when Sarah and the Indian gentleman sat alone and read or talked had a special charm of their own. During their passing, many interesting things occurred. One evening, Mr. Carrisford, looking up from his book, noticed that his companion had not stirred for quite some time, but sat gazing into the fire. "'What are you supposing, Sarah?' he asked. Sarah looked up with a bright color in her cheek. "'I was supposing,' she said. "'I was remembering that hungry day and a child I saw.' "'But there were a great many hungry days,' said the Indian gentleman, with a rather sad tone in his voice. "'Which hungry day was it?' "'I forgot. I didn't know,' said Sarah. It was the day the dream came true. 
Then she told them the story of the bun shop, and the four pence she had picked up out of sloppy mud, and the child who was hungrier than herself. She told it quite simply, and in as few words as possible, but somehow the Indian gentleman found it necessary to shade his eyes with his hand and look down at the carpet. And I was supposing a kind of plan, she said, when she finished. I was thinking I should like to do something. Well, what was it? said Mr. Carrisford in a low tone. You may do anything you like to do, Princess. I was wondering, rather hesitated Sarah, you know, you say I have so much money. I was wondering if I could go see the bun woman and tell her that if, when hungry children, particularly on those dreadful days, come at some of the steps or look in at the window, she would just call them in and give them something to eat. She might send the bills to me. Could I do that? You shall do it tomorrow morning, said the Indian gentleman. Thank you she said. You see, I know what it is like to be hungry. It is very hard. One cannot even pretend it away. Yes, yes, my dear, said the Indian gentleman. Yes, it must be. Try to forget. Come, and sit on this footstool near my knee, and only remember that you are a princess. Yes, said Sarah, smiling, and I can give buns and bread to the populace. And she went and sat on the stool, and the Indian gentleman, he used to like her calling that too, sometimes, drew her small dark head down upon his knees and stroked her hair. The next morning, Miss Minchin, in looking out of her window, saw the things she perhaps least enjoyed seeing. The Indian gentleman's carriage, with its tall horses, drew up before the door of the next house, with its owner and a little figure, warm with soft rich furs, descended the steps to get into it. The little figure was a familiar one, and reminded Miss Minchin of days of the past. It was followed by another as familiar, the sight of which she found very irritating. It was Becky, who, in the character of delighted attendant, always accompanied her young mistress to her carriage, carrying wraps and belongings. Already, Becky had a pink, round face. A little later, the carriage drew up before the door of the baker's shop, and its occupants got out, oddly enough, just as the bun woman was putting a tray of smoking hot buns into the window. When Sarah entered the shop, the woman turned and looked at her, and, leaving the buttons, came and stood behind the counter. For a moment she looked at Sarah very hard indeed, and then her good-natured face lighted up. "'I'm sure that I remember you, miss,' she said, and yet, "'Yes,' said Sarah, "'you once gave me sixpence for fourpence, and—' "'And you gave five of them to a beggar child,' the woman broke, out on her, broke it on her. "'I always remember it. I couldn't make it out at first. She turned to the round to the Indian gentleman and spoke her works words to him. I beg your pardon, sir, but there's not many young people that notices a hungry face in, you know, in that way, and I've thought of it many a time. Excuse the liberty, miss, but you look rosier and well, better than you did that, that. I am much better, thank you, said Sarah, and I am much happier, and I have come to ask you to do something for me. Me, miss, exclaimed the bun woman, smiling cheerfully. I bless you. Yes, miss. What can I do? And then Sarah, leaning on the counter, made her little proposal concerning the dreadful days and hungry waifs and the hot buns. The woman watched her and listened with an astonished face. Why, bless me, she said again when she heard it all. It'll be a pleasure for me to do that. I am a working one myself. I cannot afford to do much on my own account. And there's sights of troubles on every side, if you'll excuse me. I'm bound to say I've given away many a bit of bread since that one afternoon, just along, oh, thinking of you, 
and how wet and cold you was, and how hungry you looked, and yet you gave away your hot buns, as if you were a princess. The Indian gentle smiled involuntarily at this, and smiled. Sarah smiled a little too, remembering what she had said to herself when she put the buns down on the ravenous child's ragged lap. She looked so hungry, and she was even hungrier than I was. She was starving, said the woman. Many the time she told me of it since, how she sat there in the wet and felt as if a wolf was tearing her poor young insides. Oh, you have seen her since then, exclaimed Sarah. Do you know where she is? Why, yes, I do, answered the woman, smiling more good and naturedly than ever. Why, she's in that back room there, miss, been there for a month, and a decent, well-meaning girl she's going to turn out. And such a help to me in the shop and in the kitchen as you scarce believe, knowing how she's lived. She stepped to the door of the little back parlor and spoke. And the next minute a girl came out and followed her, and followed her behind the counter. It was actually the beggar child, clean and neatly clothed, and looking as if she had not been hungry for a long time. She looked shy, but she had a nice face now, now that she was no longer a savage, and the wild look had gone from her eyes. She knew Sarah in an instant and stood and looked at her as if she could never look enough. You see, said the woman, I told her to come when she was hungry, and when she'd come I'd give her odd jobs to do, and I found she was willing, and somehow I got to like her, and that was the end of it. I've given her a place to place at home, and she helps me and behaves well and as thankful as a girl can be. Her name's Anne. She has no other. The children stood and looked at each other for a few minutes, and Sarah took her hand out of her muff and held it across the counter and Anne took it and looked straight into each other's eyes. I'm so glad, Sarah said, and I've just thought of something. Perhaps Miss Brown would let you be the one to give the buns and bread to the children. Perhaps she would like to do it because you know what it is like to be hungry, too. Yes, miss, said the girl. And somehow, Sarah felt as if she understood her, though she said so very little, and only stood still and looked and looked after her as she went out of the shop with the Indian gentleman, and they got into the carriage. And that is the end of our story. Well, we're done. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this entire book. It's the first of I hope to be many. Um, I'd like to apologize for this particular episode coming out so late. I'm going away in a couple days and things just got very very busy and I wasn't able to finish it like I should but now it's done and I'm glad and I hope you're glad too um I'll be honest the ending wasn't quite as satisfying as I had wanted to be I'm a little bit sad that Becky's still a servant still following Sarah around I still like her character but I don't know I don't like the way you know the way that turned out um um, the literature major in me wants to already analyze this and say, oh, this is a case of um, the upper class helping the poorer class and rehabilitating them in the early 1900s, but um, no, I'm, I'm not going to say anything more than that. <laughs> it's just a story, and it's a, it's a good one at that. It's a fun one. Um, now that we're done with this, it's really time to think about the next one. Um, I'm not going to reveal what I'm going to read next but just know that it's going to happen in three weeks time um i'm going away so our next full episode will be hopefully churned out on august 
19th. Um, until then, I am going to put out a couple um, short stories that were kind of tied tied a few weeks away. Um, if I can finish them by tomorrow, because I'm leaving on Thursday, and today is Wednesday. I'm Tuesday, actually today is Tuesday. So you're going to have to bear with me. If you don't see any episodes, I'm very sorry. That plan fell through, but that's the plan. Um, but definitely look for a new episode, a start of a brand new book on Friday, August 19th. I want to thank everybody for listening. Everybody who's going to listen, because I hope this episode, these episodes will be up for a very long time and more people will see them and go, oh, well, it's a finished, it's a completed book. I should listen. Um, and I hope that you enjoy it again and you have a great week. And I will talk to you next time. Thank you very much for reading A Book Before Bedtime, the very last part of A Little Princess by Frances Hodgson Burnett. Bye now!